conversation with your girlfriend that's so good you wish it had been recorded? Think those conversations would be great to be able to share? Wondering if there's support or research for the recommendations your smart girlfriends give about mental, spiritual, and physical health? This podcast is born to answer those kinds of questions. Hello, I'm Sherry Coleman-Collins, registered dietitian nutritionist, and here with me in the studio is my girlfriend, Dee Houston. We are excited to have you joining us for this edition of the Southern Fried Girlfriends podcast. Dee, how are you today? I'm doing great, Sherry. How are you? Oh, I'm so good. I'm over the rain and cold, though. <laughs> it's been such a weird winter here. It's been like, um, it's been warmer than normal. Shorts weather on Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like. And now I'm like got a scarf wrapped around my neck because I'm so cold. You know, and it's two days later. Yeah. Atlanta <laughs> weather is just weird. It's just weird. Like, I think that, you know, of course, I, you've heard the saying before, and I think that it bears repeating, and that is that if you don't like the weather today, just hang around. It's going to change. It's going to change. It is going <laughs> to change, and it changes a lot, but I'm over winter already, and we still have a, like another month or two. I And see, I feel like we haven't actually had winter yet, mm. and so I'm like, I love winter. It's one you of my favorites. I do. I love fires <laughs> and hot cocoa oh, I love that. and cuddling on the couch. Mm-hmm. Like, those are my things. So. So since it hasn't been super cold yet, yeah. I'm like, give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like us to have a snow day um, because we haven't had our snow day and yes. I like to have a snow day. And so those of you who are listening to the show and you live in places where you've had lots of snow already or you um, you always have lots of snow, I'm not talking about that. I don't want that <laughs> either. <laughs> but I, I, we usually get like one to three days of snow and it's fun. Or it's like, ice. Or <laughs> ice. And, you know, everything shuts down and haha, you can laugh at us. I don't care. But we get to stay home <laughs> for a day or two and play in the snow and drink that hot cocoa and warm up by the fire. And it's really nice. And I, I want to have that and then I want to be done with winter. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of think of those days as like mental health days. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love it. Well, okay. So we're talking about controversy today. So, or something. <laughs> controversial beyond the winter and the winter weather. So I'm really excited about today's topic because I think it's something that as I look at or as I think about like what things do people ask me about when it comes to nutrition and health, this is one of those topics that I always get questions about. Like every week I get questions about this and people ask me or they make comments, they assume certain things about this topic that um, or they assume I agree about certain things within this topic and it's very, very interesting. And I think there's so much misinformation, confusion, and downright fear about this topic that I have wanted to talk about it since probably we started. So we are in season three, and I'm finally getting to this topic (laughs) because I think it's just something I've wanted to talk about, but I've just waited to feel like we've kind of built up our audience so that we don't lose people if we talk (laughs) about this topic. This topic is agriculture and biotechnology and GMOs and some of these really controversial things around agriculture and how food is grown. I think people get really emotionally invested. And in our previous episode, we talked about diet and how people can be really um, fervent about it, you know, really invested and emotional. And I think this topic interestingly, has a lot of the same responses from people. And I think a lot of it is is sort of comes from fear. Um, but I think that we need to address that so that we can sort of move forward in a positive, healthy way um, when it comes to food and how food is grown in the U.S. So with that, let's welcome our guest, Danielle Pennick, to the show. Welcome, Danielle. Hey, Danielle. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so Danielle is a registered dietitian like me. She has a master's of science in clinical nutrition, and she's also a freelance writer. She manages her, her cancer nutrition blog, Survivor's Table, as she spent much of her career working with cancer patients. Currently, Danielle's uh, based in Atlanta where we are, and she's on the Oncology Nutrition DPG leadership team as a social media administrator and is an, an admin for Build Up Dietitians, which is another um, sort of loose organization of dietitians that's uh, based on social media, mostly on Facebook, and um, is a great way for dietitians to connect with each other and, and talk about some of these controversial topics. And this one has come up a lot, right? Agriculture, biotech, GMOs, organics, all of those topics, as you can imagine, are things that we talk about a lot internally as professionals. And we talk with the public a lot about these issues. Yes? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's something that I think was um, 
a topic that I didn't really feel very comfortable with. And um, in school, like we talked about it very vaguely. It was kind of like, what is this technology? But I have patients ask me about it all the time. And I personally didn't feel very confident with mm-hmm. the topic. So there was a lot of confusion even for myself. So yeah. I would agree. It's something that I think has been ongoing for many decades. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we think about this issue, I, I always ask, try to ask myself, like, why? And D is such a great why asker. She's the, <laughs> the questioner in the group here. Um, but she, she, um, what, she helped me think about, like, why are people so fearful about this? Or ask me that question. And I think what what it comes back to is context. We have to think about as a society, we are very disconnected from how our food is grown, right? So I looked at some recent stats and um, less than 2% of Americans are farmers. Only about 1.3% of Americans grow food for the 100% of us who eat it. Right. So the vast majority of us have no understanding of what happens on a farm, you know, how food is grown. We have these idealistic images, right? These Norman Rockwell-esque, you know, (laughs) romantic pictures of what farming is like. And, you know, you know, we can hearken back to days of old when everybody lived on a farm. But you don't think that's kind of changing like with the what is it, locally grown kind of movement of the past few years that people are getting a better understanding of like where their food comes from? Well, I think that there is a great interest. Mm. And I think interest is not the same thing as understanding. And I think enthusiasm isn't knowledge, but I think those things can come together. (laughs) Putting that on a (laughs) t-shirt. Enthusiasm is not knowledge. (laughs) Yeah, you can feel really passionate about something. It doesn't mean you know anything. And I think that's what happens sometimes in agriculture is people get very emotional about food and they get very emotional about how food is grown and, and what they think they know about pesticides and organics and, you know, but the facts don't always measure up with the, with the with the enthusiasm or the fanaticism, you know. And I think that's where sometimes things get lost or get um, misunderstood. And you know, I think we, while in, an interest in food has grown, an understanding of agriculture hasn't grown in the same proportion, you mm-hmm. know. So people are very interested in food. They're very interested in health and nutrition, and they're looking to buy more foods that they perceive as healthy and nutritious, but they don't always understand the nuts and bolts of how food is grown. So as we, that's just kind of the setup for the show. And as we get started, Danielle, thank you for being here and telling us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little, and I read your bio and we know that you work in oncology and you mentioned that you hadn't had a lot of questions about agriculture, but you didn't really understand it. Can you tell us a little bit about how that all played out and how you got to where you are? Sure. So um, in undergraduate school, um, I went to Florida State University in Tallahassee and I worked at a food co-op called New Leaf Market. Um, I loved the community and I thought it was a great place to start so I could learn more about nutrition just because, um, you know, I feel like I could have a closer relationship like with some of the farmers because you could see the local farmers come in bringing their crops. Um, We had produce managers and I felt like I could learn more just in general about nutrition in conjunction with my studies. And so consumers would come in um, and then coworkers that I would work with and then they would talk about all kinds of myths about agriculture. And at the time I didn't realize they were, a lot of them were myths, but now I do. Um, but in school I felt so passionate about a lot of the things I was hearing that I even spoke in my undergraduate speech class about the ills of GMOs. <laughs> and, um, since then, when I started my career in, um, dietetics, um, I worked at Cancer Treatment Centers of America and I was asked all the time about, you know, do GMOs cause cancer? And a lot of questions I just didn't feel comfortable answering to, um, you know, in detailed degree. Um, So I really started just kind of looking more at information. And even though I was receptive to the information, it took me years to like really Mm -hmm. do a 180. Um, I met my husband and he's a research scientist. And so we started talking because he created the world's first GMO ant or transgenic ant. And so to me, I was like, well, this is a perfect person to talk to. And then I started seeing a lot of posts from Build Up Dietitians, and I was just an active follower of the page at the time. And it was still some of the information was hard for me to um, process because it was against everything that I had ever read or heard or understood. Mm-hmm. 
And um, finally, my husband, I think, said something along the lines of, like, you know, there's a consensus on the safety of GMOs. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, really? Tell me more. <laughs> and then I realized beyond that, it's it's more than just even accepting the science. Like now I think we're getting to a phase where people are understanding that um, more and more that research has shown that, you know, they are safe for the environment for human consumption, but it should be taken on a case by case basis. But um, the big thing now I think that concerns people and the fear is really more on like how they view the world should operate mm-hmm. and less on the science. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so more so on, you know, they don't like big um, ag or big um, monopolies. And I think that's something that is a warranted fear. Um, and so anyway, I've just kind of dug deep into all of this. And now I've definitely gotten a new perspective Um you know, on, on biotechnology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you, so you started out very, uh, anti biotech, anti GMO when you were in school. And then now you've made this sort of shift into feeling like there's a place for it. It makes sense. There, there are positive reasons around GMO. Can you Give us a little bit of a definition for people who maybe don't know. I I think, you know, it's kind of like the Jimmy Kimmel thing. Like if you ask people, do you hate GMO? They'll say, yes, I'm 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 against GMO. But then you ask people, what What are GMOs? They're like, "Uh, I don't know. (laughs) So can you tell us, like define for us what GMOs are? Sure. So a GMO is basically any kind of organism that has its genes modified specifically with genetic engineering. Um, But more specifically, what it really translates to is about one or two genes, sometimes a few more, um, that are either being added or taken away to give a desired effect or to take away an undesired effect. Um, And so there's different ways of um, looking at that. Um, But, you know, one example is like the Hawaiian papaya. There was a ring spot virus that was basically about to decimate the entire industry and Mm -hmm. nobody knew how to fix the problem. And there was a scientist who grew up in Hawaii and he went to Harvard and then um, ended up creating, um, they call it the rainbow papaya. And he basically saved the industry in Hawaii just through Mm -hmm. this GMO technology. Mm -hmm. And that was by just editing a gene within Mm -hmm. the papaya itself? Yeah. So he added, I think, I don't know how many genes, if it was one or a couple, but he basically um, made it to where the ring spot virus, it was ring spot virus resistant. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think he took it from another crop that was resistant to the ring spot virus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he saved the industry. And now if you eat papaya in the United States and the contiguous United States, you're almost always going to be eating that genetically modified papaya. You don't know it because it's not advertised, but that's what you're eating. And I've had both because I've been to Hawaii. So I've had, they actually sell the um, non-GMO papaya in Hawaii. I don't think they export it, but they ha- they sell it there still. And um, I've had both. They're both delicious. Just for the record. <laughs> Did you taste a difference? I couldn't tell. I couldn't yeah. tell a difference. They they will say on the islands, like the people who sell the non-modified, that it's much more flavorful, but I, could, I didn't find that to be the case. But what do I know? <laughs> so there are... Um, it's marketing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we'll talk about that. So um, so how many foods are GMO now in, in, our, in our food supply? Glad you asked. I think that's a very big misconception that they're just abundantly everywhere, um, especially with the non-GMO label, um, which you see, you know, and that probably goes along with the marketing component we'll talk about later. But, um, you know, you would think that they're in everything. And really, there's only 11 current GMO crops, at least in the United States currently, soon to be 12 Um but there's not a ton. Mm-hmm. And so usually I think a, a big misunderstanding, too, is that, um, you know, GMO technology is created usually to um, help prevent um, some, you know, loss of crops or uh, disease or different um positive things like, you know, non-browning apples. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's less food wastage. Yeah, I think that's an interesting one that's um, marketed as the Arctic apple. So this apple had, so apples in general, if you slice an apple and you leave it on the counter, it turns brown pretty quickly, right? And that's um, that's an oxidative kind of thing that's happening on the surface of the apple. And that's a genetic component of the apple. So what they've done is they've turned off that gene in these apples so that the apple doesn't brown. It doesn't mean that the apple doesn't spoil. It doesn't mean they haven't changed the flavor of the apple. They haven't changed anything else, but now the apple doesn't turn brown. And if you have a toddler that you're trying to feed or a six-year-old boy, (laughs) um, if you slice the apple and the apple starts to turn brown, they're not going to eat it. Even though the apple's still nutritious, it's still delicious, it's still 
everything is fine, but 10 minutes after that apple sliced, he will not touch it. So if the apple doesn't turn brown, then I don't have to throw that apple out anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the idea behind the Arctic apple. And I like that idea a lot, especially I worked in school nutrition. And that was an area where it was really a challenge because if you think about what's happening to children at like six, seven, eight years old, they're losing their teeth. Their teeth are falling out. So giving a child a whole apple can be a real challenge. They're not going to eat it because they can't eat it because they're missing their front teeth. Bless their sweethearts. So, you know, so we have to slice the apples. But if you slice the apples, the apples turn brown. Even if you add citric acid to the water, you know, you, you treat them a little bit with a natural kind of anti-browning agent, they're still going to turn brown. And eventually. a five-year-old is going to be like, that's dirty. I'm not eating it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It has dirt on it. It has built on it. Exactly. So that's the kind of technology I think that's really innovative and interesting. And I think we'll see some more of that to help reduce waste. Um, so there, so you mentioned the papaya, there's the, um, the apple, there's a fish that we've, we talked about before we started the show. There's a fish that's, um, not really being sold in the United States, but is being sold in Canada. That's been modified to increase its growth speed. So it grows faster. So it gets to the market about half the time as traditional farmed salmon. And it also, it can be grown all year long as we read. It, it was a salmon, like salmon's really a spring and summer kind of food, but you, this new salmon can be grown any time of the year. And I think that it's interesting. That one's the first animal. Is that right? Is that what we... Yeah, it's yeah. the first animal to come. Mm -hmm. um, and the rest of the GMO crops in the U.S. are all plants. Yeah. And so corn is one? Corn, canola, alfalfa, sugar beets, squash, potatoes. Um, I might be forgetting one or two more. <laughs> but that's pretty much the gist of it. Yeah. But so let's talk about the marketing of... The marketing of... GMO or the alternative, really, right? So the non-GMO label. I think a lot of people see that and they think, oh, well, okay, I don't want GMO. I'm going to buy that over something that doesn't have that label. Can you talk about what that label is? Sure. So the non-GMO labels uh, got the big butterfly that you guys probably see on all kinds of packaged items. And the funny thing is when um, you look at a lot of items that don't even have um, genes or DNA, like water, um, it says non-GMO. You're really just paying for the <laughs> label. So that's where marketing really um, has... Um, their best interest at heart into scaring people into buying these products with these labels. And so it's really costing you as the consumer um, and it's creating a lot of unnecessary fear. Mm -hmm. um, and ironically, if you go to the non-GMO website um, or non-GMO verified website, they actually do not guarantee that their products that can hold this label are <laughs> GMO free. That's so funny. So you're really paying more oh. for a label for almost nothing. Oh my gosh, that is so funny. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably my biggest beef with the non-GMO verified label is that they, they put in on a lot of products that mm -hmm. don't contain anything that could be Modified. modified anyway right like the the you know what we work d and i both uh, as many of our listeners know we met at the national peanut board and we work with the with the peanut industry and there are no gmo peanuts on the market you can't buy gmo peanuts you you can't i'll say it again they there aren't exist. any <laughs> but there are lots of products out there that have the non-gmo label on peanut butter peanut products that have the non-gmo label on them I'm not criticizing those manufacturers because they're responding to consumer interest but the consumer doesn't know that there's no gmo peanut to begin with is that label something that they pay for like the manufacturer of products yes mm -hmm. so i don't know what the costs are but each manufacturer who decides to use the label has to pay a fee for the, the label to be on the product. Mm -hmm. And then that's why as a consumer, you end up paying more because then the companies are charging you more for that fee that they're paying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the website for the organization that sells it is saying, just because it has this, we're not guaranteeing it. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. <laughs> marketing, 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 marketing. And I think one of the, so that's, so that sort of, I think, speaks well to the idea that a lot of our fear about food comes from marketing. You know, it comes from, and this is, you know, another one I think that's, that's sort of equally um, been vilified or differently vilified, but similarly is, um, is high fructose corn syrup, right? So high, I'm not defending high fructose corn syrup. It's sugar. Like, you know, it is what it is. And we should certainly not overdo it with sugar. 
but there's not anything significantly different in your body about high fructose corn syrup versus sugar. It's just sugar and your body's going to process it similarly and it's going to be just as good or bad for you as anything else, right? So don't overdo it. But, you know, you remember like five, six, ten years ago, whatever it was, there was this huge push to remove high fructose corn syrup from everything because high fructose corn syrup is poison. It's not poison, but if you overdo it, it's it's the same kind of thing. And there were all these products that came out with no high fructose corn syrup labels on the front of them. So scaring people about high fructose corn syrup when really it's just sugar and, you know, we shouldn't overdo it, but we don't have to be afraid of it either. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we so we've talked a lot about GMO and I think that that's a place where there's still a lot of question and people have a lot of questions and if they want to learn more about GMO where do you send people um, I have a couple resources that I really like. Um, one of my favorites is Biofortified. So it's a bunch of experts in the field, and they all take turns blogging. Um, and they also create um, different, like, educational resources. Um, and so it's just kind of like my go-to spot. Okay. It's a little technical depending on the topic you're looking at. So if you really want the super detailed science-y version of it, that's a great spot to go. If you want more of a kind of everyday type person who maybe doesn't have a science background, um, GMO answers is a great resource I use a lot as well um one of my favorite pieces is written by Psy Moms and it's called the Con social consequences of I can't remember the title exactly the social consequences I'm gonna leave that blank that's okay. We'll look at. I'll I'll put the link to the in the show notes. Okay, but they basically kind of cover a lot of the um, non-science concerns um, that consumers have. So, it's you know the concerns with big ag or mm. seed patents or some of the other uh, myths that you might hear out there. Mm -hmm. And um, they really go through in depth. And that was one of my favorite, I think, comprehensive pieces. Um, and then just in general for biotechnology um, messages, I really like Jack Bobo. He's on Twitter. Um, and he's a communicator um, and, and really does a great job of just kind of having easy sound bites about yeah. biotechnology. He's a researcher, right? I'm actually, I don't think he's a researcher. No. Um, he, he was. What do I know? I, I know he has his own um, company. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so when we think about G GMOs, you know, I hear a lot of times I also hear the term biotechnology. And you mentioned Biofortified as one of the websites. And this idea of biotechnology is, I think, confusing to some people. And also the term is scary to some people. So I looked it up from the USDA website, just so that we could have some context of what does that mean? Is it the same as GMO? Is it different from GMO? And what the USDA says is agriculture biotechnology is a range of tools, including traditional breeding techniques. So they're including traditional breeding with biotechnology, which I think is interesting, that alter living organisms or parts of organisms to make or modify products, improve plants or animals, or develop microorganisms for specific agricultural uses. Modern biotechnology today includes the t tools of genetic engineering. So if you hear the term biotech or biotechnology, it might not be GMO. It might be something else. There are lots of things that farmers can use now to help them grow more food, more nutritious food, and to grow it faster with less inputs. And I think to me, like, that's the thing about GMO or biotech or any of these things, they're all tools. If we think back to that stat that I shared in the beginning, right, if 1.3% of Americans is charged with growing food for all the rest of us and for much of the rest of the planet, they have to have as many tools as possible because they're limited, right? They're limited they're, they're limited by land, right? There's fewer acres put into use to grow food. That means they have to grow more food on fewer acres. And the, least, the less water, fertilizer, pesticides, and other chemicals they have to use, the better, right? I think everybody agrees with that piece, mm -hmm. but how we get there is where I think a lot of people argue, you know? And so I think that there, this is an evolving issue, and I would not say that I have um, sort of a set a stake in the ground and said, this is what I believe forever about agriculture. I think that it's changing and growing, and it should be. You know, it's like science is always something that's changing and growing, and our opinions and our thoughts and our approaches to agriculture should be no different than they are 
to our approaches to nutrition, right? Right. I think it's a tool in the toolbox, kind of like you were saying. And so there's no panacea production method out there, but there are solutions for very specific situations. And I think that's what gets lost in a lot of the communication of um, the public confusion with GMOs is that um, there's a lack of nuance. And Mm. so science is really complicated. And so a lot of times if you're looking at a website or you're looking at information, if it lacks nuance, then it might not be the best resource. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think that's, I said something this week around that same idea about sort of uh, dogmatic approaches. You know, if you're somebody who, if you hear somebody yelling, <laughs> I have the answer. This is the only way. Yeah. You know, you're not going to usually see that from a scientist. Not, no. Most scientists are going to look at things and go, well. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> More than likely. You right. Know, they speak in statistics and probabilities rather exactly. than exact. Exactly. Exactly. Because what we know changes, you know, and we might think we know something today that someday down the road we might learn something different and it changes our approach and it changes our opinion and it should. And if it doesn't, if you're somebody who's so dogmatically committed to a specific direction around food or agriculture, other areas of science, then you can't learn something new. And I, so, uh, you know, with my six-year-old, I'm always saying, because he's guilty of being like, I already know that. I already know that. And I tell him, I'm like, okay, well, if you know everything, you can't learn anything new. And it's been such a good reminder to me too <laughs> about myself. You know, if I think I know everything, it's I can't a learn new things. To us all. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. So, so we've talked a lot about GMO. Now we've defined biotechnology. What about organics? Can we talk a little bit about organics, Danielle? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so when somebody says um, says I eat organic or I'm buying organic, what does that mean? It's a good question. I think that means different things to different people. And if you ask people what organic means, you'll hear an array of definitions. Um, although there is a um, definition you know, on the FDA website that's very specific, um, but most people would probably tell you that there's no pesticides or that there are uh, more nutritious, they're healthier for you. I've even heard people say that organic food can cure cancer. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of beliefs around organic that I think um, for different reasons are out there. Um, but in general, um, organic basically can't use, um, synthetic pesticides and yes, organic does use pesticides. Um, that's often a a misconception too. Um, and so no pesticide really should be vilified, whether it's synthetic or natural, because there are problems with both. And so just because something's natural doesn't mean it's unsafe, um, or, you know, safe and vice versa with conventional. So it needs to be taken kind of on a case by case basis. And that's why the research is so important. But overall, what we've seen is that organic and conventional are both incredibly safe. Mm -hmm. Um, The pesticide residues on both are very low. um, And so the FDA basically sets standards for, you know, what is safe for consumption. And that they even factor in really vulnerable populations like pregnant women and children. And um, what they're finding is that they're hundreds to thousands of times less um, than what the upper limit is. And that's looking at even long-term effects. And so, um, the good news is our, um, food here in the United States is incredibly safe. So I, whether you buy organic or conventional or not, we just know we need to eat more produce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My advice to all, to people has always been eat a variety of foods. If you eat lots of different kinds of fruits and vegetables, you're less likely to be exposed to excessive amounts of any specific pesticide, right? So even if you are eating, um, food that may have some small amount, like you mentioned, far below the upper limit of recommend, you know, or lower limit of recommended exposure to certain pesticides. Even if you're eating a lot of produce, if you're eating a variety, you're going to be being exposed to different kinds of things. And those tiny amounts, you're not going to get too much of any one thing, right? So don't eat only apples, you know, (laughs) eat apples and bananas and pears and, you know, eat some foods that you peel and some foods that you eat the peel. You know, I think that those are the kinds of things. And and whether you eat organic or not, wash your produce. Yes. (laughs) Wash your produce, people. It's not just about the pesticides. It's also about the animal poop. So, (laughs) does washing take off the pesticides, like all of it, or? It depends on the produce, and it Mm. depends on the pesticide. It depends on how you're going to eat it, right? A lot of the pesticide is on the outside attached to the skin, right? That's primarily where it's going to be. 
And um, there's some different some 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 um, differences in that based on crop, but in general, that's the case. So if you remove the peel, you're going to remove a lot of that, you know, almost all of the pesticide probably. If you wash it, you're going to remove the vast majority of it, and you should wash produce under running water. Mm -hmm. Like that's one of the things a lot of people don't realize: wash produce under running water so that it washes it away. And um, you can use a vinegar wash if you're especially concerned about it. That can help remove a little bit more, you know, part vinegar, like one part vinegar, three parts water, I think is the general, does that sound right to you? I think so, yeah. Yeah, use that as a spray. Don't buy the stuff they sell you in the store because it's really expensive vinegar water. You just make your own. <laughs> that's right. And if you're really concerned about it, that's something you can do. Um, you can, uh, well, one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is you should wash all produce. Mm -hmm. So you should wash all produce, even if you're not going to eat the skin, you should still wash it because if you don't wash it and then you slice it or you peel it, you're transferring whatever's on the outside to the inside. Never thought about that. Oh, I yeah. do wash watermelons. Good job. Just because like I cut them onto the counter uh -huh. and like it gets all wet. But I never thought about washing a banana. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to slice through the skin. Uh -huh. Yeah. If you're just like peeling off the, the skin off. And... Yeah. As long as you're not exposing the inside of the banana to the outside, mm. then you're probably fine. Like I peel from the top and I don't necessarily wash my banana. I don't wash oranges. And if I cut I them rinse. into wedges yeah. and then I put it in my mouth, don't even think about it. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Mm. There you go. Now you will. <laughs> I mean, that. That's, Thank you for that. You're welcome. You're welcome. I mean, I think that's one of the things. And you also mentioned that organics can use pesticides. And I think that's something people don't realize mm -hmm. is that, you know, it's about natural versus synthetic. And there are a lot of, um, they're, they're chemically, a lot of times chemically very similar and just because something is a natural pesticide doesn't mean it's not still toxic. Right. Right. Copper sulfate's a great example of yeah, that. Yeah, that's the one I thought of. Mm -hmm. And so it can be moderately toxic to um, humans, and then it also can be um, toxic to birds. And so, you know, not to vilify, you know, organic either. I think that there's problems with both types of pesticides, but that's just something that I think not a lot of people really factor in and realize. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's definitely important to really um, kind of um, just be thankful for the production system that we do have. Of course, we can always do better. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that I was surprised to learn too throughout my journey is that um, a lot of farmers actually have both organic and conventional farms. Yeah. And so then I realized there's like a lot of practices between organic and conventional that are more similar than different. Yes, yes. And I think one, whether it's organic or it's conventional, one of the things that I've learned working with farmers is that um, they're, they're business people, right? I mm -hmm. mean, they're, they're, they love what they do and they're committed to farming and their communities, but they're also business people. And pesticides and chemicals are expensive mm -hmm. and the margins for farmers are really small really small. So the more they have to spend on pesticides and inputs, whether it's water, fertilizer, or pesticides, the less money they make. And they're trying to take care of their families and their communities and keep their farms active for generations. So they're not going to overuse pesticides mm -hmm. if they don't have to, you know, they're very focused on reducing the inputs that they use. So, you know, I think that there's, in some cases, there's been this idea that farmers are just willy nilly spraying <laughs> everything. <laughs> which is just, You'll get a spray. You get a spray. <laughs> the Oprah of farmers. No, I mean, it's, that's it's just, it's such a crazy thought when you just sort of carry that on to the, the most, logical depth you know sort of train of thought you realize wait a minute this that doesn't make any sense right but it doesn't do make any sense I think because we have a connection to farmers for someone yeah. that's um disconnected from the way that food is grown they mm -hmm. may not understand that yeah well, hopefully that gives people some other yeah. way to think about it. You know, I think that overwhelmingly the farmers that I've met love their land. They love their communities. They they live on their farm. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you mentioned about big ag or sort of this. Um, I, sometimes I hear people talk about um, industrial farming or and I don't know anybody who industrial farms. I know lots of farmers and I've met lots of farmers, but I don't know. And I know people who've got big, big farms, but it's about economies of scale, mm -hmm. right? They're bigger because they have to be. I mentioned those small margins. You know, a small farm is very 
very difficult for a sp small farm to make it, you know, and that's just the reality of industry. And if you look at, you know, other industries, it's similar, right? There, we've, we're seeing lots of consolidation of industry. And the reason is because it's gotten harder and harder for smaller businesses to compete. The same thing has happened in farming, and you may not like it, but it is what it is in our economy today. And farms oftentimes have to consolidate, they have to grow in order to make enough money to keep farming the next year. Absolutely. Yeah. And so and I think so that sort of when you think about it in a much more practical way, I think that might take away some of the fear. It doesn't take away all of the fear and it doesn't take away all of the questions. And personally, I don't think there's anything wrong with asking questions about farming and biotech and, you know, agriculture and learning. And some of the best places that I've gotten answers are from farmers. Mm hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, I personally don't like big monopolies on any industry, but I also have to remind people that, you know, there is big organic too. Yes. And so it's not just synonymous with conventional. It does go both ways. Yes. And so when we think about like labeling and organics, you know, um, the organic label is sort of a marketing, it's a marketing term, right? More than anything. Yeah, I mean, it can be. So I think what a lot of people don't realize, if you see organic, it actually is about, it de its definition is 95% organic um, methods are used, mm -hmm. unless you see like 100% organic, which I really have actually probably never seen at the store. Interesting. Um, so, I mean, I definitely think um, it really just depends on what you're looking for as a consumer. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think um, it, it is a lot of marketing. Yeah. Do you think that there are people who should eat organic or benefits to eating organic? Um, I mean, personally, I always tell people, you know, eating is a choose your own adventure. So <laughs> you should eat what makes you feel most comfortable. Um, and so I don't personally recommend just any, you know, any specific person to eat only organic. But if it makes you feel more comfortable, certainly can if it's in your budget. Um, it is going to be a lot more expensive. Yeah. Um, but I honestly feel pretty safe with all food. And so I'm always recommending just, you know, buy what looks best yeah. or buy what's on sale. Um, and, and, you know, if you have a farmer that, you know, or, you know, you want to go to a farmer's market and buy locally, then, you know, get a variety of those options. Yeah. I think that, you know, when I look at organics, when I, when I'm in the grocery store, if that's where I'm buying produce, you know, a lot of times I'll look, I'll compare side by side, right? Mm -hmm. I'll look at them and see where did this come from? Where did this come from? How does it look? Does it look does it look appealing or does it look shriveled? You know, mm -hmm. sometimes organics, unfortunately, I mean, I buy, sometimes I buy organic. I won't lie. I definitely, sure. sometimes I buy organic. And a lot of times it has to do with price mm -hmm. and it has to do with quality, right? That's much more important to me than, um, than how it was grown, to be honest with you. And where did it come from? You know, are these sweet potatoes from North Carolina, which is right around the corner, you know, almost from us, or are these sweet potatoes imported from another country? You know, I would be much more likely to buy the North Carolina sweet potatoes than I would be those that came from another country. And that has a lot more to do with freshness and quality and also sort of um, the overall impact of that product getting to me. Mm -hmm. I find that a lot of times organics, not always, and sometimes the organic produce is beautiful. And if it is and it's affordable, I'll buy it. But a lot of times it sits on the shelf longer um, because it's more expensive and so fewer people are buying it. So it's going to sit on the shelf longer. And the longer the produce sits on the shelf, the less nutritious it is, whether it's organic or conventional. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't like to overpay for my produce either. <laughs> I don't either. Yeah. Pretty much the only time I buy organic is if it's cost less than the other. Yeah. So what about the Dirty Dozen? Can you speak to that? Sure. Tell us about the Environmental Working Group and the Dirty Dozen. Yeah. So the Environmental Working Group every year puts out a list that they deem the dirtiest produce items that you shouldn't buy um, conventional and that you should buy organic, you know, when you're able to because they're the most, quote unquote, contaminated with pesticides. Um, and they also have the Clean 15. And so every year that changes um, depending on um, the... Uh, information that they put together. And so toxicologists from a, a governing board um, nationally, they have actually looked at the um, information that the Environmental Working Group puts out. And the, what they've found is that, number one, they're not actually looking at um, pesticides independently in terms of their toxicity. They're t saying they're basically all equal, which we know mm -hmm. is not true. Mm -hmm. You know, some pesticides definitely are more toxic than others. Um, they're also not comparing it to any known safety measure. 
Um, and then they're also only looking at conventional crops. They're not testing organic crops. Oh, interesting. And so we know the organic is using pesticides too. Uh Um, And so basically um, the go-to resource that I like is safefruitsandvegetables.com because they're actually looking at known safety standards. And they have a pesticide calculator, which I really like. And so what you can do is kind of put in um, a particular produce item. You can put in if you're female um, and your age, and they'll tell you how many servings of a particular food you'd have to eat. And what you'll find is you really physically could not eat the amount <laughs> of produce um, servings that they're telling. Fourteen cases of apples. <laughs> exactly. It's very similar to that. Um, and so it really makes you feel reassured that um, even the highest, um, you know, p- uh, pesticide-laden uh, foods, you're still not able to even eat you know, physically eat that mm-hmm. amount to cause any harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of helped me relax. And so often I, I recommend that as a resource rather than the environmental working group, mm-hmm. um, just because they're not a reliable resource. And a lot of scientists and, and governing bodies have criticized their mm-hmm. methods. So do you know who they are, the environmental working group? I forget the... Is it a lobbying group? I think it is. Yeah. yeah. It's I like an activist group. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. So do you know if they if they measure the pesticide residue themselves or do they use the USDA's um, numbers? I'm not 100 percent sure. OK, yeah. I'm just just curious. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I, I like you was a bit of a convert to like I started out much more conservative about fruits and vegetables and much more leaning toward organics. And um, I'm not against organics. So I want to be really clear. I'm not at all against organics. I think it's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, I think but I I am against using fear as a way to try to motivate people to eat a certain way. And then that's about organics or anything else. I don't I don't like that use of sort of misuse of information. I think that the research is overwhelming, that the most important thing is that you eat fruits and vegetables, Mm -hmm. whether they're organic or conventional. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I'm with you. I don't like fear-based messages. It's like if you're going to sell your product, sell it on merit, not fear. Yes, absolutely. And all fruits and vegetables are nutritious. Mm -hmm. So that's another one that I think we get a lot of questions about is, um, are organics more nutritious? than conventional. No. And there's been some research on that too. Um, and they've basically shown they're basically equivalent. And there's so many factors that can change the nutrient composition of produce items. It could be the soil, the time of year, um, location, um, and different farming methods used. But Mm -hmm. um, organic really is not a factor in the nutrition composition. Mm -hmm. And some people have concerns about farm workers being exposed to pesticides and things like that. Do you know anything about that? Yes. And so um, they do find that, you know, farmers and their spouses tend to be, you know, the most heavily exposed to these pesticides because a lot of them are are, um, applying the pesticides to produce. And so there was a really large study, and I don't remember the name of the study, but there was about 89,000 farmers and their spouses that were looked at. And what they found is that across the board, there was no increased risk for cancer, at least specifically um, when looking at cancer. Um, And so it looks like, you know, as long as you're applying it based on national standards and guidelines and you're not abusing um, the pesticide um, quantity or amount, which you discussed earlier, farmers don't really have an incentive to do that. Um, You know, overall, the farmers and their families are, are safe. That's great. That's great. Do you look like you're really processing? I am. <laughs> <laughs> I am because, like, as a regular consumer, that's what I've been told is that the um, organic produce is much more nutritious because it has, I don't know, magic powers. But, <laughs> but to think about that not being the case and that basically if I were to wash it, I'm getting about the same than I would if I were to wash my um organic produce. So mm-hmm. what is really the incentive to pay more money? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I guess that's a personal decision, but mm-hmm. I would agree. I, I don't know that it really, the cost of it um, really gives you that added benefit. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So if we can say that conventional versus organic, we can just, whichever one you prefer, not a, not a significant difference in the two nutritionally and safe, safety wise. What about local versus global when it comes to the when it comes to produce and food do you have an opinion on that 
Um, so, I mean, it just depends on what you're looking at. Like, I know even sometimes buying certain things locally can be less sustainable than if you buy it out of the country, which sounds crazy. Um, but I used to live in Arizona in a desert. And so if you can imagine trying to grow a lot of produce in the <laughs> desert, it's pretty water intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it actually might be more sustainable to buy it from a different state or even a different country. Um, and then in terms of safety, I know every country has different safety regulations, but I know in the United States, when we import anything, the FDA, um, is looking at making sure that the, um, safety of these uh, products coming in meet the standards from, um, the United States guidelines. Mm-hmm. So is that you, FDA or USDA? Or USDA, yes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. No, okay. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think overall we have a pretty safe, um, system, but if you're mm-hmm. traveling abroad and you're eating, there, then, you know, that might be something that you want to look at, especially if you feel like you want to limit, you know, certain pesticides that aren't, you know, allowed in the United States. But um, overall, I think you can feel pretty safe in the United States with uh, both local and imported goods. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great, that's a, a great way to think about it. For me, when I think about local versus sort of global foods, I, I definitely consider a couple of things. So one thing is freshness. You know, I like local because it can be fresher. True. It can be, you know, if it's traveled, if it hasn't had as long of a trip, it's going to get to me more quickly after it was picked. That's true. But in order to eat locally, you have to eat seasonally. And that's something I think people have gotten, again, thinking about how far we are from farming and agriculture and the fact that you go to the grocery store, it's it's January, you can still buy strawberries. Strawberries are not being grown generally in the United States in January. Right. <laughs> We're not harvesting strawberries in January in Georgia. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> So, I mean, I think that's an, that's the thing is like you have to understand seasonality when it comes to food and that requires some learning, you know, mm-hmm. for most people. So if you don't know much about that, I would encourage you to learn about that and then you can know what is local. It'll give you a better idea of when you go to the grocery store in January, what's seasonal and it's going to be things like dark green leafy mm-hmm. vegetables and root vegetables because those are the things that grow when it's cold. You know, you're not going to get as much fruit and bed, you know, fruit in general as you would in, you know, except for citrus, citrus is in season right now. Mm-hmm. So, so that's something you have to learn. You have to learn to think seasonally in order to eat locally when it mm-hmm. comes to produce, especially. Um, but the other thing I like to think about is sort of, um, other inputs, right? It's not just about food, um, not just about freshness. It's also about the other, other things that were used in order to get that to me, right? So how much, Fossil fuels, I'm not a huge, you know, I'm not like anti-fossil fuels necessarily. I recognize we need it um, in order to live the lives that we live. But how can we reduce the use Mm -hmm. of, you know, transportation in order to get food to us? And if my food is coming from Chile, it's going to be they're going to have had to use a lot more resources to get that food to me than if I got it from, you know, North Carolina or Mm -hmm. South Carolina or Florida. Right. You know, where they're growing a lot of produce. Yeah. So lots of considerations when it comes to buying our fruits and vegetables. But I feel like um, hopefully the people who've listened to this episode will have some freedom around and some confidence and comfort in eating, whether they choose non-GMO verified or organic or conventional, whether they're eating locally or whether they're eating food that comes from South America, which by the way, I still buy (laughs) because my son loves grapes and we have grapes all year long. (laughs) So um, any other parting thoughts or questions? Um, I guess just to echo like what you were saying earlier too, you know, I definitely myself choose a mixture of local, um, you know, organic and non-organic. Um, and, and really it just comes down to what's in season, you know, what do you want at your home and, mm-hmm. and a lot of different variables. And so um, I just encourage people to really um, think about eating um, and, and listening to, you know, messages that you hear from people um, without fear and just really sticking to the science and the facts. Yeah. I love that, the science and the facts. And where can people find you if they want to follow you? Um, so my blog is on um, www.survivorstable.com. I'm also on Twitter under Danielle Pennick um, at well, – I guess it's just at Danielle Pennick. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll include that in the show notes too. So if you missed it, you can find Danielle um, through the show notes. All right. Awesome. All right. Yeah, I'm excited. Thank you again for being with us. I think this was a a great show. Great conversation about a controversial topic. 
What a great year to start. A great way to start 2020, right? Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. We're not afraid of controversy, and that's for sure. (laughs) Well, all right, girlfriends. Thank you for listening today. We have loved having you with us. And um, if you enjoyed this show, please share it with a friend. And um, we invite your comments and suggestions. You can always reach out to us um, by email at southernfriedgirlfriends at gmail.com. You can find us on social media. Feel free to make a comment. If you disagree with us, we are open to that. We're not afraid to chat about some of these controversial topics and know that there are lots of different opinions out there and we're happy to hear them. So as we close the show today, here's the question we always close the show with. What is one thing you're going to do to be healthier today, Dee? So I'm not doing this today. I'm doing this tomorrow. But um, one of the things that I think it's important for my mental health is kind of leaning into difficult conversations. Mm. Um, and so I'm meeting someone tomorrow to have a conversation about some difficulty that we've had with one another. Oh. I'm nervous about it. I'll be praying But um, I understand that it's great for my mental health and for her mental health for us to kind of clear the air to be able to move forward. Oh, so, I love that. Yeah. And, then, and the goal is resolution and absolutely yeah and absolutely I think um that to me like we're called to reconciliation mm-hmm. that's like I love that um you know as Christians part of what we have is the ministry of reconciliation mm-hmm. and I love that I love that reconciliation with one another so good for you yeah I'll be praying for you thank you <laughs> Um, what am I going to do today? Well, I am going to probably do some prep because I have some cooking that needs to be done. I need to clean my fridge. So I'm going to be focused on that today. And I think that is definitely for my health, but also I have on my exercise clothes right now. (laughs) So that is to motivate me to exercise before the end of the day. So fingers crossed that happens. (laughs) It will. Uh, It's Saturday. So I'm a little lazy today, but I'm going to try hard to get myself moving today. What about you, Danielle? Um, I probably will go to the store and at least load up on some produce because we're uh, almost empty at our house in terms of all the food that we've got available. <laughs> and so when I have less food at home, I end up not eating as many produce items. Oh, so. yeah. 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 Do you do the um, leave? Do you keep like a bowl of fruit on the counter or things like that? Is that like one of the things you do? So I don't only because my husband hates fruit. Oh, no. It grosses him out. Oh. And so he's more of a vegetable guy. So I actually end up keeping most of the produce that's not in the refrigerator in my office downstairs. How about that? So some of it will be hidden and some of it will be stored in our fridge. (laughs) That's so funny. Now I know your husband, so I'm going to never forget that about him. I'll remember not to make a fruit dessert (laughs) when I come for dinner next time. He does like berries and citrus. Oh, good. But most other fruits he All right. All right, then. Well, thanks again for being with us, Danielle. And um, girlfriends, we've loved having you with us on this show. And we hope you have a fantastic day. Bye, y'all.